Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Now, without further ado, please let me introduce our first speaker, Professor Jessica Chen Feng. Dr. Chen Feng uh, is an associate professor of marriage and family therapy at Fuller Theological Seminary. She's a practicing family therapist in the greater LA area, supporting Asian American individuals, couples, families, and churches. Her research and clinical work center around social contextual intersections of race, gender, generation, trauma, and spirituality. Jessica resides in Upland, California with her spouse, two young children, and an aging miniature schnauzer. Please welcome Professor Jessica Chen Feng. Thank you so much, Dr. Chow. Um, but I want to say good morning and hi to everyone. Um, I am, it is such an honor to be here with so many esteemed and loved colleagues of mine and friends of mine who will be sharing today. And thank you to, to David Chow, who's spearheaded this. And somehow we have hundreds of people signed up and I never imagined when I started um, in the MFT field, um, the marriage and family therapy field, that we would be here in this place. And so um, we, we see the need, we feel the need, and we are here together. So let me um, share my screen here and, and start this presentation. All right, so here we are, the pursuit of Asian American happiness. Um, I was thinking about what would be a fitting image to start off with. And this is an image of my maternal grandmother's parents. So my great grandparents. And this is in Southern Taiwan. And I never had a chance to meet them. But I think about, I often look at this picture. I have a second screen here. And I see sort of like the gaze in their eyes. I wonder what they were holding and imagining. Um, and I think about, you know, four generations later, here I am. And I wonder and I imagine about each of your ancestors and the people in your family's lineage um, and the hopes and dreams that they had for their posterity. Um, so, so I just hold these people dear to my heart as we are having this conversation today. So a brief overview of what I'll talk about. Um, I'm gonna go more into an introduction of myself, um, a, a bit of how I'm gonna frame our conversation today. We'll talk about migration. We'll talk about what I'm calling conscious and disconsciousness. And then we'll tie this back into um, Christian faith and, and how do we think about context and mental health and Christian faith. Um, I also wanted to include, these are my sweet parents. Um, this is their wedding photo from the early 80s. And uh, they came to the States by way of New York. So this is um, close to New York City. Um, but I, I imagine that all of us, um, when we think about our identities and um, why we care about the Asian American church and why we care about mental health, it's because of our families. We love our families um, and we are holding them with us as we think about our collective well-being. So um, I think it's always 
I don't like telling people about myself for this, the sake of just telling people about myself. I think all of us, um, our history and context shapes who we are. So I just wanted to give you a brief introduction to my family's history and context. And um, here's my current nuclear family. This is my husband, Andre. He's been a public um, educator for many years, and he's working on finishing up his PhD. Um, fingers crossed this year, we hope. Um, we've had two children along the way, so he's had many breaks, but these are our two kids, Justice and Liberty, age five and almost two. Um, my family immigrated from Taiwan in the 70s, and um, by way of my mom's family, by way of Argentina, and um, the stories that I've been told, uh, a huge part of it was um, leaving Taiwan because there was a fear of communism coming and um, taking over their lives. And so, um, you know, my parents had very different stories. My mom's family was probably upper middle class. Uh, my grandfather was a physician. Um, and what I didn't get to mention here is that um from my mom's side of the family, there's been a lineage of, of Christian practice for uh, five generations. Um, I would be the fifth. And so I'm grateful for you know, the missionaries who went to Taiwan and um, brought over you know, Western medicine, but also um, the, the message of Jesus and, and how to live with and for Jesus. And so um, that was... The reason why my mom's family left, and it was similar for my dad, so this is the post-1965, right, when a lot of immigration opened up to the U.S., my dad was the youngest of seven siblings, and all of his older siblings came to the States for grad school. And so that was the reason that they were allowed to come. And so my dad came along, and, you know, long story short, uh, my parents were introduced to each other, and they got married in the East Coast and eventually made their way to the West Coast. Another part of who I am, I think that is critical, is that I was born and raised in the greater Los Angeles area, specifically the San Gabriel Valley. And so um, this may be similar to some of you, but I imagine that as Asian Americans, our lived experiences are as diverse as anything could be diverse, right? And so I grew up in a place where it was fairly Asian American dominant in the sense that from the time I got to middle school, I would say the majority of my peers would identify as Asian American. So that does something in terms of shaping my sense of self, right? I saw Asian American peers um, pursue leadership, be sort of visible. Um, yes, thank you, David. Fond memories of the 626. That is my cell phone number starts with 626 still. But um Right. Access to food that that feels like home. Um, all of these things are critical. And so I, I share that with you because I'm informed by that context. Um, I have been here my whole life. And so I'm very familiar with the, the churches that are here, um, the, the sort of Asian American networks, um, the clinical um avenues and, and how people pursue therapy and things like that. So um, yeah, I don't want to get too much into it. And lastly, I wanted to talk about 
the fact that I was trained at Fuller Seminary and Loma Linda University, two institutions very dear to my heart. And I'm grateful that at both of these institutions, I had faculty and mentors who really um, helped me nurture the integration of Christian faith and psychology and family therapy practices. And to think about doing it thoughtfully and critically um, and to apply this to the clinical populations that I um, have served. And so, um, yes, I, I will say that for now and move on. But all of who I am, you know, these pieces of me inform how I'm about to keep sharing and presenting and the things that I will talk about. So on this next slide here, um, I any of if you're my colleagues or my students, and I'm so grateful I see many of you here, you have probably heard me talk about some version of this, right? Um, in a Eurocentric context, we often think of psychology and mental health from an individual perspective. There is nothing inherently you know, wrong about this. This is um, a, a cultural framework to think, oh, if someone is struggling with depression or wrestling with these sorts of issues, let's look at um, this individual person, right? The intra-psychic well-being. What are their thought processes? What are they, um, you know, reflecting through? Um, a lot of individual-focused work can be really helpful. Um, as a marriage and family therapist, um, our training is not simply just the family, but the family system, right? So oftentimes clinicians who are trained in a systems perspective will offer this next layer of insight. Well, beyond the individual, let's look at their family context. Um, what in their family context could be contributing to or, or shaping some of the things that are going on, right? What is their relationship like with their parents, with their siblings, extended family? Um, all of these sort of things shape who we are. And when I went into the MFT field, um, I, I totally believed as a Taiwanese American that, you know what, family's a big deal. And so that's why I chose to go into the MFT field. Um, and I have never regretted it. It is something I continue to love. And that's why I teach. Um, I forgot to mention, I'm an associate professor of marriage and family therapy now at Fuller Seminary. Um, but that's why I choose to stay within this field because it's so dear to me. The piece that today we're going to focus on is looking at um, at the context. There is a context beyond the individual and the family. How does this larger societal, cultural, political context affect the family system and, of course, then the individual? And so this is where I'm going to encourage you to think, right? These are things like our political systems, our cultural systems, how about your religious context, the churches within that which you grew up? Um, all of these things are going to shape how the family is living and functioning, the individual. Um, you know, our workshop today is not so much on the details of this, but I wanted to introduce you to this framework because this is the, the lens with, from, with which I'm going to be talking about today. So here are some just really basic 
data on the context of migration. And this is, you know, thanks to the Pew Research Center. I am not a sociologist or a statistician. Um, and so I'm not sharing this to look at the specific details, but I wanted to give the sort of general view of what is the context of migration. So 57% of Asian Americans, including 71% of Asian American adults, were born in another country. So if you think the larger U.S. population, actually, it's it's either 12 or 14 percent. I think it's 14 percent of all people who reside in the U.S. were born in another country. Right. So with among Asian Americans, this is a high percentage. So six out of 10 Asian Americans were born in another country. 34% of U.S. Asians speak only English in their homes. The other 66% speak another language, um, and these are in order of um, the most to the, uh, the top four, Chinese, Hindi, Tagalog, and Vietnamese, right? So 66% of our households speak a language other than English, right? So you're imagining here with me that all these households in the United States um, of Asian Americans, we have a big chunk who still speak, have a bilingual um, family life, right? 27% live in multi-generational households. So this is still quite a bit, right? At least a quarter of Asian American families in the United States um, are living with multi-generations. Um, I also thought, you know, I wanted to get more specific data. If anyone here has access to this or knows where to get it, please do share. But I was curious, what are the paths to immigration? Um, and this is something I could find is that it's more about like green card status. Half of all Korean and Indian immigrants who received their green cards in the year 2011, they got it through their employer sponsorship. Um, most other people talk about economic, educational, and financial reasons. And of course, we have a, a large chunk of certain Asian American communities like the Vietnamese community that have come as political refugees. Um, and then the last piece of data I have here is that a, a good number of our communities have connection to their countries of origin, right? So 58% of Vietnamese Americans are most likely to have sent money to someone in Vietnam. Um, our, our Filipino families, Japanese and Korean. Um, but I don't know about you, but on my phone, I, I used to have WeChat, I've got Line. You know, we are texting with family in Taiwan regularly. And I imagine that many of your families, um, you yourselves, your parents, your grandparents, um, use all forms of communication to reach relatives in your country of origin. So um, the reason why I share this is to talk more specifically about the things why all this matters, right? Why do we want to think about the history of immigration? Um, I understand in the United States, we have, pe we have Asian Americans here who are probably fifth and sixth generation, if not even older, right? Um, but there is something that we share, and there is a wonderful quotation from 
um, this book, Racial Melancholia, Racial Dissociation by Aang and Han, which I appreciate, which um, I'm also going to say, you know, Dr. Daniel Lee in his new book, Doing Asian American Theology, he cites the same quotation. When one leaves one's country of origin, voluntarily or involuntarily, one must mourn a host of losses, both concrete and abstract. And um, sharing from a clinical view, um, this is the most significant, this quotation really stood out to me. I forgot to mention, um, I have mostly worked, my clinical population has been Asian American Christians. So um, I used to have a private practice in South Pasadena, um, California, and most of my clients were Asian American, Asian American Christians. Um, the last four years, I was at Loma Linda University working um, completely with our physician and medical student population. I would say a lot of my clients were Asian American Christians. And so the, the very clear thread that I heard in practically every story is this, that whether the client was an immigrant themselves or their parents or their grandparents, there was a very clear history of loss. And so um, I know many families have gone through a history of war, um, being a political refugee. Um, some of you may have had the opportunity to hear the stories of your parents or grandparents. Some of us um, have never had access to those stories personally. We've had to read about them. Um, we've had to watch movies that have taught us about them. And so oftentimes, though, this, this trauma is not talked about um, because there's no language for it. it. It's much too painful. But there's uh, research out there on the intergenerational impact of trauma, right? The way that it affects um, the person who's experienced trauma, the way that it shapes their brain, um, the way that this shows up in their parenting, their marital life, how they handle stress, their communication patterns. Um, and so that trauma may never have been vocalized or talked about, but it is felt in the body and, and children feel it growing up and there are impacts of it. So, so our stories of immigration matter because um, we may be passing on unintentionally, of course, the way that our immigration stories, if there's trauma there, to the next generation. Um, bicultural and intergenerational stress on families. And so we think about, um, you know, the experience of immigration. I've heard some of these stories from, from my mom mostly about, you know, what she went through and the things that their family went through. Um, and then you think about children who were born and raised in the United States, right? We, we talk about the intergenerational gap. And so there's a lot of tension between the generations. I would say if there is one clinical presenting issue, this might be the one that I've personally seen the most. It's documented a lot in the literature. Um, and so the, the stress as a result of differing understandings, perspectives, expectations of identity, of family life. This is a real part of what happens um, as a result of immigration. Um, I also wanted to mention, you know, the ways that our hopes and dreams are shaped. We think about the legacy of migration, right? Um, 
there is so much sacrifice, right? Whether the migration was voluntary or not. Um, when you leave a place, you are leaving sometimes family, a home that you love, um, a community that felt comfortable, people who looked like you, um, all of these things. And so, you know, parents or grandparents, um, ancestors came with hopes of, well, I sacrificed so much. And so I have certain hopes for my family, my children, my grandchildren. Sometimes those hopes are spoken, right? Sometimes it comes in the form of what sort of career um, they hope for, what kind of partner they would like you to marry. Um, but, and I know many times there's a lot of pain in these hopes because it causes tension and stress within families. Um, and, and this piece about connection to extended family, right? Sometimes it's, what am I going to tell my family back in Taiwan or in whatever country about how we're doing? Are my kids quote unquote successful, right? Was our sacrifice worth it? Was coming to the U.S. worth it? So there's a lot of, of burden um, within the family unit because of all of these connections, these unspoken hopes and dreams. Um, these are all being shaped. And what I will say is that oftentimes communication is hard, right? We know that language is a barrier. Oftentimes, if um, one generation primarily speaks one language and the, the next speaks a mix of both, but their um, competency isn't fluent enough to talk to their parents about how they're feeling, asking really you know, meaningful questions about family history, sometimes that can make it really hard for families. And so, um, you know, on this next slide here, I have this picture of, you can see this in more detail if you wanted to on the Pew Research Center's website. But just briefly, right, um, where families immigrate to really matters. And, and this is where I'm going to move more into talking about the context. I know in the last slide, I just briefly touched upon some of these family and intergenerational stresses. But here you can see, you know, what which state has the largest Asian origin group, right? Here in California, of all Asian um, groups, Chinese are the most uh, highest percentage. So you'll see it varies by state. Now, of course, we know this also varies by specific cities, right? Specific communities. Why does it matter where our families immigrate to, right? The location-specific experience of being Asian American. The racial makeup of your school places, your neighborhoods, your workplaces, this matters. Um, I remember having conversations with Asian American colleagues and friends who were, and, and cousins actually, who were the only Asian American student or family at their school, right? How does this affect racial stress? Um, if you're the only one, you feel like you might represent all, you know, Chinese Americans. Um, then what do people think about the food that your family eats, right? Um, I know this, this has shifted a lot and I think it still affects certain families depending on where you live, but some of us grew up feeling embarrassed about our fried rice, you know, going to school because our peers didn't know what it is. And now um, I, I sent over, you know, our kids, we, we pack them. Oftentimes it's various forms of Asian food, but 
you know, seaweed, some nori, some rice, and their you know, non-Asian teachers are like, oh, that smelled so good, right? But I would have never imagined a teacher or a peer telling me that my food smelled good in, in elementary school. Now, um, same with your workplace, right? If you are the only fill in the blank, um, that can be hard because um, no one else looks like you, no one understands sort of your racial or cultural background. Um, it, it can, there's all sorts of research on the racial stress. Um, the political landscape of a community, right? Where you live, um, here in California, there are certain things that um, laws, uh, awarenesses, politicians who are aware of Asian American issues that might be different in other places. We know that this is not necessarily protecting our elders, especially in this climate of anti-Asian hate and racism. Um, but at the same time, these things matter because it shows up in education, the sort of history books that are being taught in schools. So, so this is really important, right? I, we think about this now for our children and um, where they go to school and how familiar their teachers are with um, the fact that young Asian American boys are often bullied, right? And, and noticing, is that happening with our children? Um, number two, this community and family support, right? Where we immigrate to, um, it can shape our community and family support. So what degree of support is available for parents, for the marriages, the children, for family life? Oftentimes this comes by way of our churches, of course. Um, is there a space where Asian American families can feel known and seen, right? Um, this is why our family continues to choose to go to a, an Asian American church, a pan-Asian church um, predominantly. And it's because during the week, our kids are not in Asian American dominant spaces. And um, I would like them to feel a sense of rest and ease on the weekends and to have that connection to people who look like them, who understand some of their cultural heritage. Um, is there access to ethnic-specific support, food, um, other community centers? And um, you know, oftentimes, parents don't realize uh, that they carry racial stress, right? They're at work. They're maybe either targeted or picked on or feeling some sort of um, subtle microaggressions about you know, their racial identity. Um, I know, you know, my mom has shared about the stress at her work. And when my sister and I listened to it, we're like, you know, there might be some racial issues there um, and, and sort of the ways that we, we live and, and try to fulfill the myth of the model minority. But all of that translates and trickles into family life and the stress that parents carry, right? And, and the way that it affects their marriage. And so, what is the community support available? And then lastly, this, this tension of both visibility and invisibility, right? Um, trying not to stand out. Um, a lot of uh, Asian values is about fitting in, um, going with the flow. D don't stand out. I know there's, I don't really speak Mandarin fluently. I, I speak more Taiwanese, but I understand there is some proverb about like, the, the duck with the longest neck gets the neck cut off or something like that, right? 
Um, but this idea that we don't want to stand out, but then we end up being unknown, right? So I don't know how many of you, um, your schools or workplaces or, or whatever environment you're in, you've been mistaken for another Asian American woman or man, right? Because people have a hard time. They, they don't know how to read and make sense of our phenotype, right? So, so it sort of, to them, we are invisible, um, there's a whole history of Asian racialization that is beyond the scope of, of today, but I encourage you to look at our history. There's so much there. Um, and the fact that we're targeted for our racial identity, but we're not recognized for our individual identity, right? So the fact that, oh, you're Asian American, you know, this anti-Asian, anti-Chinese sentiment, with this, you know, pandemic era, but you still don't know my name. You don't know who I am at this school or at this workplace, right? So, so the tension between being overly visible because of our racial identity, but then being invisible and being really unknown for my personal sense of self. Now, um, for, for today, at least our conversation, um, before I get into this, this we're moving into the last portion of what I'll talk about today, but um, consciousness and disconsciousness. So I, I've talked a little bit about, you know, some family issues, how migration can affect family life, um, where we end up can shape racial experiences. Sorry, I keep hitting this microphone. But now I want to talk about consciousness and disconsciousness. So consciousness, the way I'm using it here is it's a general awareness of our thoughts, memories, feelings, sensations, and environments. So this is just like, as I go throughout my day, I'm generally aware of like, oh, I'm feeling stressed, you know, at this particular moment because of these things. And like, I'm overwhelmed because the kids are all yelling and I'm tired, right? Um, it's just a general consciousness. It, it doesn't necessarily mean I understand why I'm stressed or why I'm overwhelmed, but I'm just, I'm, I'm going about my day recognizing various things. Disconsciousness is this wonderful term that Dr. Joyce King coined in the early 90s. Um, she describes it as an uncritical habit of mind that justifies inequity and exploitation by accepting the existing order of things as given. So let me um, talk about it in another way. This is different from unconsciousness. We talk about this, right, in psychology. It's the things that we're unaware of that are under the surface, right? Disconsciousness is different from that in the sense that, like, I would say that as Asian Americans, we generally live with a lot of disconsciousness. Um, we are not... Um, Many of our parents were not taught about issues of equity or how to understand racial issues, not because they didn't want to, but it's largely because they came from countries where racial conversations were not the norm, right? Because it was mostly one racial, you know, one ethnic group, and most people looked similar, similar phenotypes. So when you come from countries of origin like that and you come to a new country, you don't know initially to think about things on a racial level, right? Um, but in the United States, um, 
racial issues really shape our social experience. And, and, um, and I hope that, you know, some of you totally get that, you know it, you experience it. But for many of us, we live in a state of disconsciousness. And I would say that that's where I was um, for most of my life, right? Where I wasn't aware that, wow, the way that I think and live, um, I, I may not know a lot of things or understand things. And I just accept that things are the way they are and I don't need to critically examine them. Right. So our Asian American values of conforming to norms, wanting to keep the peace, it can trick us into thinking that disconsciousness is is OK. Um, but what I want to say is that especially for our Asian American spaces, spaces of faith. Right. We are in a place of history where disconsciousness is now harmful. And if we do not address the larger context, um, we are going to miss out on a lot of the hope that God wants for our families, right? So we think about, I'm just going to talk about this from my first and second generation perspective, right? Parents or grandparents who immigrate, their conscious thinking is about survival, avoiding stress, pain, and further trauma. They're thinking about their hopes. What am I hoping for? What are the dreams that I have for children and the future? Um, how can I stay connected to my family, right? With my limited English proficiency, this is why I want my daughter or son-in-law to be able to speak fill in the blank, right? I want to stick to the things that are familiar to me because it's normal when someone has been through a lot of trauma and stress in their lives, their psychological tendency and, and um, natural state is to, to be with the things that are familiar to them. The disconscious level, though, is that we don't understand the racial landscape and history of the United States, right? We did not assume that we should know these things. And so when we're going about our day and experiencing microaggressions, right? Um, I don't know how many of you have had differing interpretations about racial experiences from your parents, right? We might say, oh my gosh, that was so racist. Um, I can't believe they said that. Um, maybe another generation understands it differently. How do we identify and make sense of racialized experiences? It, it varies. And so being in a disconscious state makes it hard then to understand, have language for, how to talk about this with our family members. Um, the effects of bicultural and intergenerational family life, right? Again, the way that different generations make sense of our context, um, you know, some parents will say, you know what, don't let those kids bother you, right? Um, just keep doing well in school, try your best, and, and, and don't let them, you know, if they pick on you, just ignore them, right? Um, some of us may have heard that growing up. Right now, the way that we teach our kids is, I mean, at least in our family, is how to identify when something is happening, how to speak up for yourself, right? Um, and, and to be proud of the fact that you are Asian American. And so um, a disconscious state, though, will lead to a lot of internal stress. I would say that it contributes a lot to um, our sense of 
Um, unconscious anxiety. Um, anxiety is very common, not only in our youth, but we know that it is fairly common within the Asian American population. Um, this is the last slide I have, and, and I, I know I'm at the, at the end here. I'm going to finish up. But what is the role of our Christian faith? I know we have many uh, leaders here of the church. We have many lay leaders. We have pastors, those who are training to be um, but we are God. Is is our God the God of the oppressed? How does our theology acknowledge our racial experiences, our contextual experiences? Do we talk about the stress that families face when they are experiencing certain things in their neighborhoods, in their schools, in their workplaces? Are we connected to our identities of pain and oppression, and are we able to talk about this? in our faith context, right? Um, oftentimes, because I would say in most Asian American families, they are a, there is a history of stress and trauma and immigration of, at some point. Um, but oftentimes, our inclination is to not want to remember some of those stories. They're really painful and they're hard to talk about. So now that we're in the States, if we feel like our families have made it, if our kids have gotten the good education we hope for, whatever it is, we want to focus on that new reality and we forget not only where we've come from, but we neglect to see that where we come from continues to affect our family life. Trusted pastoral counsel, right? What the pastor models and preaches is everything. I, I can't emphasize this enough. Pastors, um, what you preach from the pulpits, what you talk about, that is the very thing your congregants are, are going to believe to be real, right? So if you talk about mental health issues, if you don't, um, unintentionally don't, right? If you um, have not yet integrated racial conversations, um, if you are not talking about the stress that young people feel about their racial identity, then faith makes much less sense. It's much, much less integrated. My encouragement to you is, have you as a leader reflected on your family's personal immigration history, your context, right? Have you processed some of the trauma that lives there? It is never easy to do so, but we encourage you to, I would encourage you to, there are so many helpful trauma interventions available to us today that help us so that we don't have to be afraid of looking at some of those painful things. And the last thing is the hope for healing, right? This is, this is the hope of our faith of Jesus in our lives. I know on, on a conscious level, right, parents came to the States for educational, financial stability, right? There's a lot of family preferences around these things, right? I want to validate that for someone who has lost so much in the immigration process, it makes sense that some of their biggest dreams for their family is simply educational and financial stability, right? Success in these ways, some sort of comfort and security that makes so much sense, right? But I hope that as we move forward with whatever generation you are, our children and our children's children and their children. My dream is that we would hope for healing that goes beyond the tangible and the concrete, that we would have relational connection that is meaningful. 
we would be known, we would be seen and loved by our communities, by other racial groups, that there's true freedom from generational pain, that we can live with a deeper faith, hope, and love, and that there's mutual connection with siblings at church and neighbors in the community. So um, the hard work begins with each and every one of us, the churches that we are shaping, how are we bringing that contextual lens into our theological conversations, into our preaching, um, into community life. So, you know, thank you so much. I, you know, as um, it, I, I spoke about this in this video, the promo video, I know um, David Chow mentioned it too, but I love John chap uh, chapter 10, verse 10 that Jesus came to give us life to the full. Is life to the full having a secure job and taking care of our families well? Or could it be more? Could it be life to the full is that I feel true internal freedom from stress, from um, you know the pain I feel wrestling with my parents? Can we have deeper communication? Um, can we have cross-racial conversations at church? So um, I hope that some of these things gave you um, things to think about, to bring to your churches, to your families. Um, thank you for being here, and I will be around today to, to chat at the tables later. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.